Hello, and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast that discusses the intricacies of weekly worship planning. This podcast comes to you from Discipleship Ministries, a general agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. My name is Dr. Cynthia Wilson. I'm the Executive Director for Worship Resources and Director of Liturgical Resources here at Discipleship Ministries. Joining me today are my colleagues, Dr. Derek Weber, our Director of Preaching Ministries, and Dr. Diana Sanchez-Bouchon, our Director of Music Ministries. Together, we hope to discuss creative team-building processes for organizing, for designing and planning worship, for developing sermons and sermon series, and the process of selecting appropriate congregational music texts from various contexts, from styles, cultures, and performance practices, all of these based on the liturgical season and using the common lectionary as the primary biblical backdrop. We are so happy that you have joined us. So let's get started. In this very first episode of Worship Matters, we are excited to share worship planning helps with attention to the lectionary as well as the liturgical year. Additionally, you can depend upon us to give attention to ways in which we as a United Methodist a resource bank might offer suggestions for homiletical, liturgical, and musical trends that speak across our rich global denomination. And for our purposes, the term global points us to what the Nairobi statement labels as contextual, cross-cultural, transcultural, and countercultural ways of worship for the 21st century. As you know, we are now emerging from the season of Advent, the season that begins the Christian year. And today, our focus will be on Epiphany. This is a special day that follows the season of Advent. So we want to talk a little bit about this idea of Epiphany. What is Epiphany? Uh, The word itself comes to us from the Greco-Roman context. Originally, the word functioned as a designation for public appearances of state officials within the provinces. So its root, epiphania, literally means to manifest or to show forth or to clarify. And so based on this definition, the first century church embraced the term as a designation for the manifestation of brilliant appearances of of the Christ, uh, this Messiah uh, that the world had been waiting on, Christ, God in the flesh for the world. This helps us understand why Epiphany would follow Advent. The Messiah has come, and we now find ourselves in this dispensation of illumination. I kind of like to think of it as a, a divine dispensation of supernatural sightings. So it's the light that we look at, the dispensation of supernatural. I love that title. I've never heard that before, but 
But what's fascinating to me, Cynthia, is that in the culture, Mm -hmm. epiphany has taken on a subtly different word interpretation it means it means a revelation or an idea or mm. something has come to me when i did some research on on epiphany mm. I, f- I found that there are many companies for example that use the word epiphany in their title the epiphany consulting group the epiphany legal team right. even the epiphany architects and they're all trying to imply that or give this idea that they are Coming up with this new thing, this mm. new revelation, this new light, perhaps even. So there's a correlation. Epiphany is a word that people know and understand, but perhaps we need to shape it a little bit in, in the worship of the church. It's interesting the way the sacred and the secular do come together Indeed. through so many uh, various ways of talking and thinking. Um, so the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all describe some sense of this idea of epiphany. Uh, and so there is, within these stories, uh, described an unusual sighting of a resplendent star. And this star is sitting positioned in the eastern skies. And this star is actually serving as a guide for a distinguished group of foreigners who are seeking to locate this long-awaited messianic presence. Uh, So this king of the Jews has finally come. Well, you have to know that Herod is powerfully threatened by the news of this new so-called king. And so he assumes that these distinguished men from the East uh, were possessing magical powers. And certainly, if anybody could find this Christ, this Messiah, they could. So he secured their services to seek out the boy child. Meanwhile, Herod was determined to destroy the child and sought to destroy every boy child, determined that there would be no other king but himself. So if you look at Matthew's gospel in the second chapter, Matthew refers to these visitors as magi. That's an interesting word because um, I know that magi, and you think of the word magic, Mm -hmm. that it has negative connotations. um, Can you speak a little bit more about that? Well, actually, uh, this particular idea of magi does actually come from the word magic, or the word magic is derived from the root of that word. I think I just had an epiphany. Yeah. (laughs) Good job. uh, So the title uh, is given to these kings by priests who are uh, Persian priests, Mm. Zoroastrian priests uh, from the East. And you have to also keep in mind that during this period of history, astrology and science and religion are all working together yes. collaboratively mm-hmm. as, as persons are studying. So um, so this idea of uh, these distinguished priestly uh, men coming into the scene is, is an important uh, piece of the story. Now, some people actually give these persons a name. Uh, some gospel writers even call them wise men. Mm. Others call them kings. You remember the the carol, We Three Kings of Orient are. Yes. Uh, Sheba, 
is represented by one of these persons. Arabia is represented. And then Tars and Egypt are represented. But I think the number three actually is derived from the fact that uh, these visitors bring gifts. And three things are named. Those things include frankincense, gold, and myrrh. So we really don't know if there were only three. My sense is that they probably traveled in packs and there might have been more than three. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. The idea is that they came to bring these gifts and lay them at the feet of the Messiah. And with this backstory in mind, uh, the Christian church has determined to celebrate January 6th as the official Feast of Epiphany. The overall primary intent of the entire month of January, in fact, is to intentionally connect the idea of God doing new things, fresh new ideas, new beginnings, new opportunities, just as you described the ways that these companies are utilizing the word itself, epiphany. Mm -hmm. And so as children of God and children of light, uh, primarily, we focus this entire month on ways in which Christians are being light and being uh, a new presence, uh, a new understanding, even an incarnational presence in the world. We are light, the light of justice. We mm. embody the light of peace. We embody the light of liberation. Uh, and interestingly enough, this day of Epiphany actually points us toward uh, another area that uh, throughout the month of January we focus on, and that is uh, humanity and justice and care and concern for all of humankind. We'll talk more about that next time, but it folds into the idea of how we live out this light that we've experienced. Absolutely. It, it becomes a, uh, a reality of, of the life, the light of Christ living through us and in us in how we create community, how we connect beyond our boundaries, how we, how we include and invite others to come and be a part of the larger Absolutely. whole. Well, and, and also we remember that uh, December 21st was the darkest night of the, the whole year. Right. Um, and so from December 21st, now we're every day is in, increasing in light. So I love that interplay that happens with that as well. Yes. Well, I wanted to mention that um, Day of Epiphany is really uh, a cherished day in the Latin American culture. It's called Dia de los Reyes or Dia de los Reyes Magos, the... Um, the three kings, the wise men, the the magi, as we mentioned earlier. Um, and what happens in Latin American countries is that this is the day that gifts are exchanged, even more so than on Christmas or Christmas Eve, because of the gifts that the three wise men brought to the Christ child. So these celebrations in Latin America actually begin on January the 5th, the evening before. And so here you have a, a dinner that is created for the family to gather. Um, 
And the children go to bed, but often they'll put out some hay and some food for the animals that mm. bring the three kings because you want to be hospitable to them, right? They're bringing you gifts. And so they'll go to bed, and in the morning they wake up and they'll have their hot chocolate, and they'll be able to open their gifts and, and um, have a wonderful family breakfast together. But one thing that's a part of the family breakfast is the Rosca de los Reyes, which is the king's cake. It's a cake that's circular, has sprinkles on it, and inside the cake there is an image of the Christ child tucked away in it. Now, does that sound familiar to you? It absolutely <laughs> does, particularly being a native of New Orleans, where during the season of Mardi Gras, uh, actually, Mardi Gras Day is referred to as Fat Tuesday, but leading up to Fat Tuesday, everybody's breaking their necks to get to the bakery <laughs> to buy a king cake. And guess what's inside? A baby. A baby. <laughs> I'm not really sure that the culture itself has uh, identified it solely as the Christ child, but you know that New Orleans is a very Catholic uh, yes. culture. Mm -hmm. Building uh, the parishes. Absolutely. So uh, in some in some sense... Uh, I'm sure that that symbolism is pointing uh, as as far as Catholicism is concerned to the, the Christ child. That's so, so interesting that these two cultures are... Yes, and so, so what happens with the baby? Who, who gets the baby in the... Listen, in, it varies from house to house. <laughs> it just depends on where you live and who you live with as to what the prize is for the baby. The important thing is that you not bite down on yes, not the baby. Too hard. Well, in the Latin American culture, whoever gets the, the baby, they're then tasked with having the tamale party on February the 2nd, which is the day of Candlemas. Mm. So uh, it's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful thing that happens in these Latin American churches. Also, uh, that January the 6th, the 12th day of Christmas, that concludes all of the festivities mm. of Advent and Christmas. And the next day, people start putting away their uh, ornaments and all the decorations, and mm. it's the end of that. But as you said, Derek, the light still continues. It grows into this next season, that uh, the season after Epiphany. What, what we find in, in worship planning, but also in being the church together, is that these things connect from one to another. Right. They fold from one into the, to the other. We're talking about Fat Tuesday. That's the beginning of the Lenten season, yes. but we're really not there yet. Right. It's, <laughs> it's hard sometimes to keep things separate because they all connect. That's right. In fact, I wanted to, to take a moment and, and back up and talk about why we chose to focus on Epiphany as a single day, a standalone day, worship celebration in the life of the church, as opposed to being a part of an ongoing series. Mm -hmm. Epiphany comes in the part of the year. The liturgical year divides into two halves. The first half is the story of Christ. The second half is the story of the church, how we live out the Christ. But even that is not terribly distinct because Christ continues to be in the story of the church and the church continues to be in the story of Christ. In fact, Epiphany is a single day. It is a single Sunday. There is no, technically, there is no season of Epiphany. So we have Epiphany Sunday, which is the Sunday closest to January the 6th. Mm -hmm. And then the next Sunday is ordinary time. That's the season that follows Epiphany, ordinary time doesn't mean ordinary, of course. Nothing in the life of the church is ordinary, but it means it's counted, and it means it's our place to, 
to step in and say, what are we doing with this light, this light that has spread through us? So if you want to call it the epiphany season, there aren't any liturgical police that are coming, going to come and cart you away. But technically, this is ordinary time. This is the church's time. So we focus on epiphany as a standalone kind of event so that we can fully experience what the wise men experience. And frankly, Diana, I, I think it would be a great movement in the United Methodist Church if we stopped giving gifts on Christmas and started yeah. giving them on January 6th. I think that would go over well, don't you? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not. Changing I, I'm that waiting for those three kings to show up at my house. Are, okay, well, I'm just be. waiting for the gold. <laughs> <laughs> But we pulled out Epiphany as, as a standalone um, ex experience to talk about the kings who come and experience this, this Christ. The kings, as, as Cynthia mentioned when she was describing them, they, they have come to represent the world, the wider world. We sometimes think as we're planning worship and focusing on worship that we're always inward looking. We're just looking at who we are. Who are the people within the walls? Who are the people who are going to come to our worship services? But the kings remind us, the magi remind us that there's a world out there, a world that may even be exposed to something of the Christ, something of the a, light. a global world? A global world. That's, <laughs> that's a word I'm learning to, to use. I haven't used it that much, but, but I understand what it means. It means living where I am, but having a view to beyond that. Places, yes. And so the, the kings have come to represent different races, different mm. cultures, different people, different ages, uh, so that we can understand that our world is bigger than what we see sometimes in our sanctuaries, so we can focus on that. We then, in, in the uh, ordinary time season, have decided to create a, a series in the middle with two bookends around them, which are also events in the life of Christ mm. telling this story. The Sunday after uh, Epiphany is the baptism of the Lord, and we created that as a standalone experience. We titled it Well Pleased because of the words that come, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased at Jesus' baptism. And we really believe that that should be an event in and of itself. One of the things I experienced when I was uh, serving the church in Britain is that the first Sunday of the year was always covenant. Renewal Sunday, and we use Wesley's Covenant Prayer. So that could be done on Epiphany Sunday, or it could be saved to this Baptism Sunday, to the second Sunday, as we renew our baptism as Christ is being baptized. So if you're in your local church, you have some folks who are ready for baptism, whether they be children who have been brought to the church or adults who have gone through some conversations and some mm -hmm. training and are ready to be baptized, that's a good day. The second Sunday of January is a good day to do that, to celebrate that baptism. And even if not, then you can do the rituals that are in the United Methodist Hymnal about the renewal of baptism. And so we can all remember our baptism or celebrate baptism in the midst of that, even as we acknowledge Christ. We turn to the gospel messages, and this is year A of the liturgical cycle, and so it's Matthew's gospel who is telling us about this event. And Matthew describes it in such a way that the emphasis is not on the ritual itself. All of our arguments, all of our battles are about how you do baptism. The gospels don't care about how you do baptism. <laughs> what they care about is what's going on in baptism. Yes. And what's going on is there's a connection being made. Christ is coming. Jesus comes to the river to be baptized by John. And John is reluctant at first. He said, this doesn't seem right. This is out of place. Maybe, 
Maybe you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, no, this is the way. Meaning he wanted to come and show his allegiance with us. Those of us who need mm. the baptism of repentance. Those of us who need that water to come on us, that light to shine on us. And so Jesus was saying, I am one of you. Christmas, Advent and Christmas was about incarnation, the beginning of Christ. Now we're about Jesus standing with us, coming to be a part of us. In yes. That. I've always loved that um, the reaffirmation of baptism is done around this time, which is the beginning of the, of the year, the calendar year. And it's a time when people are really open to uh, thinking of, of themselves in new ways. And um, I, I think the repentance of sin and uh, being able to think more about grace is just key at this time of the year. And for me, using water, that element of water is such a wonderful way of cleansing away the old and uh, allowing f for space for something new. It would be a wonderful thing if we focused on this idea of New Year's res rev resolutions mm -hmm. uh, in that context as opposed to what we are going to do whether we lose weight or start exercising yes. or all that, you know, yes. right, about our faith. And My about goodness, our, what would it, what would yeah. happen if we really thought of it in those terms? Yeah. Well, in fact, the, you have talked, Cynthia, about some of the symbols that we can use. And, and here again, they can begin to blend together. The, the symbols of Epiphany can then leak over into, for example, as mm -hmm. Diana was saying, what about the light, the water of baptism? What if the light reflects on the water? What kind of images do you see on the walls of the, of the place? And that's a spillover from the entire Advent journey, right? Uh, because each week we're lighting another candle. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest to those who are planning worship and designing worship, those who are executing, that you not see that as a time to put the candles away, uh, but to continue this idea of light in the sanctuary. You might use a different uh, shade of uh, different colors uh, in the African-American tradition uh, because of um, Kwanzaa and because of the approaching of Martin Luther King's celebration. Oftentimes you will find the colors red, black, and green on the altar. Those are the colors of liberation. But I want to encourage you to continue to focus on light on your altars. You can use various other colors. You can even continue to use the Christ candle as the central focus of the altar and the symbolism of Christ being light and we following that example you might even think about a kerosene lamp. One of those old-fashioned lamps gives a, a good opportunity to talk to babies, the children, about how we used, <laughs> we didn't have a light switch, but there were ways that we were able to uh, cause light to increase in the room. You, you actually had to carry the light with you. That is correct. Mm -hmm. it, didn't, it wasn't in the room waiting for you. You had to carry it. You had to bring it into Absolutely. the room. Absolutely. And, and it lit one step at a time. <laughs> yeah. So there, there was an element of trust exactly. with the kerosene <laughs> lamp, right? Uh, so, yes, we, we really um, we think that these symbols, uh, think about the story itself, the star. Uh, what things could you include in the, uh, the sanctuary that would suggest this idea of the bright, brilliant, the brilliance of the star, and he's guiding the feet of the Magi or the kings, um, which means that there's an opportunity for a processional. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe you might mm-hmm. even have the children, not necessarily wise men, but the children are just as capable as bringing in the light and not just the acolytes, but other light. Uh, there, if you have window sills, that might be another place to uh, have light uh, be placed in the sanctuary. You might invite people to bring their own light. What what does light mean to them? And all over the sanctuary have all of these ideas of what light means in our various uh, communities and homes. Uh, you might include beautifully wrapped gifts. Yes, we have opened gifts, uh, but now we remember that the Magi continued that gift-giving tradition. Uh, and what is it that we ourselves can gift to the world, a world that's so broken, so fragmented? Uh, what is it that we can bring into the conversations that the United Methodist Church uh, finds itself having? Um, these discussions that seem to uh, cause um, tension and uh, these these discussions that really are important to include in our regular um, Sunday morning adventures in worship. Uh, so beautifully wrapped gifts uh, that represent these things brought in by the Magi. Uh, be intentional to use things that represent other uh, traditions, other ethnicities. Um, make sure that it's a multi-generational uh, multicultural, <laughs> multi-sensory. Uh, mul- yes, absolutely. Um, we we can't always uh, depend on uh, scented candles because of the the concern for people having allergies for in, with fragrances. But uh, you could certainly bring in images that help you to imagine what it might smell like if a, an evergreen tree. Or in mm-hmm. the sanctuary, and it's just freshly cut or be- bread baking in the kitchen as you walk in. <laughs> uh, and I want to come back to the gift idea. Christmas is so wrapped up in gifts. Yes. That was a pun. So wrapped up in gifts. <laughs> we got it. And, and the gifts kind of take control over what we're trying to do. That maybe if we were to talk about gifts now, that we could put them back in their proper context. What the gospel stories tell us is that yes. the, the Magi gave the gifts after they worshiped. Yes. Or they were a response. They were a, an acting out of their desire to worship the child uh, that they had found. And so now if we, as you were saying, let gifts be one of the symbols that we use. Yes. And they're not the gifts in and of themselves, right. but they're an extension of our worship. I, I think that has some power. I like that a lot, too. And that makes it for a great children's time. Yes. Exactly. You know, to yeah. have this big gift that's all wrapped and there's nothing in it. So, uh, you know, yes. and that's a, a great conversation started and say, what is the best gift that we get at Christmas? Mm. Yeah, exactly. And another thing, you know, talking earlier about the king's cake, having king's cake after the worship service mm. uh, in the narthex or the mm. lobby or somewhere in the church is a great way to um, have that other sensory of taste yes. be a part of the whole Absolutely. experience. What yes. a great epiphany experience. Well, we know there's no um, experience of worship without having some music to yes, draw from absolutely. and to think about. And so I wanted to give some suggestions, some ideas of, of what can be sung uh, during this season of or this day of Epiphany, now these 
songs that I'm going to lift up for you, you can find in the United Methodist Hymnal as well as the supplements that we have in the Methodist Church. If you go on the website and look at hymn suggestions, you'll see the listing of all those supplements that we are talking about. First off, I just want to bring up one that we, I think everyone knows, and it's called Christ is the World's Light. Going back to the idea of glocal, Christ is the world's light. You know, Christ comes for me personally for me, but Christ comes for everybody. And that's number 188 in the hymnal. Another one that I love so much is Jesus, the light of the world. This is a gospel song that is just so infectious and we love to sing it. And what's good about this is that the... A song leader or the choir can sing the verses oh, absolutely. and the congregation can sing the refrain. And it's just a beautiful song. Another song that is uh, great that I've used before is called He Came Down. Mm. And this is from Cameroon. And what's so cool about this is the rhythm. There's this interplay of two quarter notes in every measure. You've got two quarter notes followed by three uh, uh, notes that are a quarter note triplet. And for me, that sort of is the image of this camel walking. Mm. <laughs> so you've got bomb, bomb, John, 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 John. So it's this really awesome rhythm. It's an easy song. Have the children learn it, the youth learn it, and then the congregation can learn it really quickly. There's another one called Walking in the Light of God. And this one fits the journey theme because we're always walking and we're thinking about walking in this light. And this is a song found in the Upper Room Worship Book. It's from South Africa, and it uses English and Zulu. And there's four distinct sections to this song, Mm -hmm. and each section repeats. So, again, you can have the song leader or the choir sing it the first time, and when it repeats, then everybody can sing it the second time. It's great, very teachable. Sia Hamba. That's another song that talks about we are marching in the light of God. It's a song that has become well-loved all throughout the world and uh, and here in the United States. Um, this is a song that uh, was brought to the United States in 1979, and it's such a great song. Children know it because it is in the curriculum now. Absolutely. In fact, the song was brought to us out of uh, the evolution of the apartheid Revolt. Mm. Uh, so you found people in the streets of so- South Africa, Johannesburg, and Durban, marching down the streets and singing the Siahamba. Mm. Uh, and so our colleague from uh, South Africa, Patrick Matsinganieri, was the person responsible for right moving that into this. Yes, Patrick, uh, he's from Zimbabwe. Right. Yeah, was the director of music at the Africa University there for many years. Yes, in 1979, he said that it was sung here for the first time, here being the United States, um, at the World Council of Churches. Mm -hmm. And he was part of that introduction to, to us. So that's wonderful. Um, and the another good thing about that song, which you'll find in The Faith We Sing, there's Spanish, um, there's English, there's the Sulu, and there's French. So this is a song that can be sung in multiple languages. The Canticle of Light and Darkness, it's found on 205 in the United Methodist Hymnal, is a canticle that brings together several verses 
and uh, all on the theme of light and darkness. It's It reads like a psalm that we have in the hymnal. So there's bold print and light print, and people you know, uh, read back and forth. But there's always a refrain that can be sung with it as well. Mm-hmm. So that's another really great one. I Want to Walk as a Child of the Light, this hymn number 206 by Kathleen Thomerson, one of my all-time favorites. And what I love about this hymn is that you can use the refrain as a call to prayer or a response to prayer and um, and use the whole song um, in a variety of ways. So I encourage you to look at that if you haven't sung it yet. It's a, it's a really great hymn. Is that one in the hymnal? Yes, it's number 206. Yep. And then the last one I want to touch upon um, is one that I think everyone knows, some version of this song. <laughs> it's a spiritual, and it's called This Little Light of Mine. Do you know um, a little bit more about that, Cynthia, that you want to talk about? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I immediately think of the image of the kerosene lamp <laughs> uh, during the time of, of, of slave life and the ways in which it functioned for uh, those who had to uh, go into the outhouses uh, in, in the middle of the night. Uh, but they also functioned in, uh, in cooking and in life in general. Uh, but the, the light itself was um, the ways in which slaves talked about coming out of a dark place. You mm. talked about the 21st of December being the darkest day. Mm. Slave life on plantations every day was the darkest day. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and so the words of that song really would suggest that there is intrinsically a part of our DNA, uh, as even people enslaved, there is a light inside of us. Uh, and we can be light by not being uh, uh, react to the ways in which we are treated, not to treat others in, in that same way. And there seems to be a lot of verses, and and well, it's 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 one of those uh, spirituals which is typical of the spiritual that you write as you sing. Uh, so the verses are actually written based on what the day has been like, mm. and depending upon where you are in the world geographically, you might have a different um, interpretation in terms of the tune itself. Right. I, the one, the tune that I grew up with singing in Bible school mm-hmm. every year is the, the, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Do you know that verse? I, I do know that, that version of it. Mm-hmm. I do. And I think it's that same version that, uh, um, that university choirs began to, mm-hmm. um, particularly historically black university choirs, began to um, give a classical uh, bent oh, yes. to the, the, the uh, spiritual itself. So you might have heard Fisk Jubilee singers doing it. Um, the soloist would have said, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It might sound, seem a little antithetical uh, that the tune itself feels like lament. It feels mournful. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it, indeed it does. But then in other places, you might hear them singing, There's a little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Oh, Jesus gave it to me everywhere <laughs> I go, all in my home. And the song could go on for hours. <laughs> Usually an it. ending of something. <laughs> 
Well, those are just some some ideas for you all to think about as you're looking at music for congregational singing. I encourage you to look at all of these uh, hymn suggestions, song suggestions. Envision how you can use them in new and creative ways. Worship services that I've experienced with really good energy and flow use congregational singing to move from one action to another so that it's continuous and there's never a stopping point or dead space. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, So these are great songs. Go out there and and use them. Some of them are even singable by non-singers, which is always good for me. (laughs) (laughs) At least a joyful noise, right? That's right. I'm good at the joyful noise piece. That's it. (laughs) Well, there's lots more to come as we talk about the rest of the season uh, going ahead, but but we wanted to focus on Epiphany for this one, our first podcast. It, it seems a good place to begin this revelation of this new idea of us talking with you directly about what we're about. So we hope that you'll be willing to go with us on this journey as we share the light with one another. And for more information, you can always find us online. Go to our website at www.umcdiscipleship.org. And when you're there, click on Worship Planning, and you'll find the resources that are available there to you. Blessings to you. We are Worship Matters, because in spirit and in truth, God comes.